she was brave because she carried on despite being scared. All of the defenders that I've worked with in the region are always scared. Nobody can be under that type of pressure when you've got death squads coming after you, when your name appears on the military hit list. Of course you're scared. But she was brave because she believed in a better future, a more just and equal country, you know, in which everybody could live sustainably with the planet. She believed in a more just and a fairer Honduras. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. This is the Extinction Rebellion and Writers Rebel podcast, and this episode is called Who Killed Berta Cáceres? I'm Jessica Townsend, and today I'm joined by another fresh presenter, Michaela Herman, who's been doing editing, producing, and social media for the podcast for quite a while. Hi, Michaela, welcome. Thanks, Jessica. It's good to be here. Tell me what you know about Berta. I didn't know a whole lot before this episode, if I'm honest. Um, I did know that she's the activist that XR's iconic pink boat in Oxford Circus back in 2019 was named after. But I've learned a lot while we've been pulling this episode together as well. Yeah, she was um, a social activist from Honduras and she was killed in March 2016, which was just one day before her 41st birthday and it's thought this was because of her opposition to the Aquazaca Dam. Her organisation was called Copine and she was a co-founder of it and that is the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organisations of Honduras and it's well known for its uh, incredible work. So why is her story so important? Why are we kind of revisiting it now? One of the reasons is that she's such a big figure. Uh, She had just won this massive environmental prize before she was killed. So that was obviously flagrant uh, on the world stage. The other reason is that the podcast uh, hasn't yet covered this kind of work being done in the global south, particularly by indigenous people. And it's becoming more and more a centre of interest across the world and within XR UK. So it felt like it was a big gap that we needed to fill. And more particularly, last month saw the publication of a book, Who Killed Berta Cáceres? And I know you got to interview the author of that book, Nina Lacani. She's the person you heard at the beginning of this episode. Why don't we hop over to that interview now? I'm Nina Lakani. I'm a journalist, I'm currently the environmental justice reporter for Guardian US, but I've previously um, spent almost seven years covering Mexico and Central America, and I've just published a book called Who Killed Berta Cáceres? That was out this year, 2020. Yeah, yeah, it was just published in June by Verso Books. Congratulations on that. So what drew you to Berta's story? I mean, I met Berta Cáceres, I interviewed her while she was alive and, had, um, and you know, she made a, obviously a huge impression on me. And when I met her, she was 
already under huge pressure, under lots of threats, facing prison for trumped-up charges, and told me in that meeting that no matter what security measures she took, when they wanted to kill her, they would. And that's what ended up transpiring. And so then I started investigating her death for The Guardian um, as a freelancer. And really, the more I reported and the more I published, the more pushback I got. I was harassed. There was online campaigns against me. I, was, I got threats myself. And that just sort of really motivated me further because it was clear that there was this powerful network of elites in the country that controlled the country who did not want the truth to get out. Um, <laughs> and, and Bertha's story is emblematic, you know. Um, she was extraordinary, but her murder was not exceptional. You know, she's one of hundreds of defenders that have been killed in Honduras and across the region in recent years, directly linked to their work trying to stop these environmentally destructive mega projects. What was she herself like when you met her? Um, you know, it was a really difficult period that I met her in. So she was at that time underground. She'd gone on the lam because the dam company, this internationally financed dam company, had pressed charges against her, false charges against her, which, you know, using the corrupt state to sort of bring those charges and there was an arrest warrant out for her. Um, and so she was staying in a different place every night. So she was obviously understandably very, you know, under a lot of pressure. She was very, um, she was serious, but, you know, warm and generous with her time. She was incredibly convincing and compelling. You know, she was, when, she, when Bertha spoke, you listened, everybody listened, you know, and she was just really, obviously very smart and just passionate and just very clear about what the situation was, why she was under threat, why her kids had been forced to leave the country to study because of these threats, the pressure she was under and the fact that the state was complicit in this, that the state and the private companies were working together, you know, to really, um, what she described as social cleansing, to really neutralise the so-called enemy, which were people like her, you know, community leaders. And just to kind of jump in, would you mind giving us a little bit about her background and how she came to be an activist? Sure. So she's the youngest of 12 children. Um, she's an um, Indigenous Lenka. She identified as an Indigenous Lenka woman in Western Honduras. And she was born in 1971. And that period during the 70s, 80s, the whole Central American region was a Cold War proxy being fought by the US and Russia. And so there were civil wars in neighbouring Nicaragua, in El Salvador, in Guatemala. And Honduras was used as a military satellite by the US Army to arm and train right-wing death squads that, you know, were killing peasant farmers and civilians across the region. And she grew up in that I environment. I think that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the great things that comes out of the book, that Berta's story is so threaded through the story of her country and uh, also that some of the neighbouring countries were quite war-torn but Honduras wasn't because it was just kind of a pushover. Yeah, I mean, it's true that Honduras was never officially at war and the human rights violations um, that occurred in Honduras were not of the scale that took place in these neighbouring countries. But Honduras was, has been used and abused by the US, by other, you know, other members of the international community in conjunction with these powerful military, economic, political, religious elites. And so really that you know, activism, environmental defenders, community leaders have been suppressed 
as much, you know, but in a way, the eyes of the world have never really been on Honduras because it never had an official civil war. And so a lot of the sort of repression um, has gone under the radar, you know, um, and I think you're right that Barca's story, to understand her life and her death, you have to understand the context in which she lived and died. You know, the political, the geopolitical, the, the economic, the global economic sort of um, model and, you know, to really understand who she was and why she was killed. And she had, she seems fearless. I know that when you met her, she was very ground down. She was in fear for her life, but she seems to have had so much bravery. What was her background, do you think, that led her to, because she not only was a Lenka, she was also a woman. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say Bertha Casares was not fearless. I think she was scared, but she was she carried on anyway. She knew that her life was at risk. She knew that her family's life was at risk. They were under constant surveillance and they were under threats. She knew that the risks were very real, but she carried on anyway. And that is bravery. She was brave because she believed in a better future, a more just and equal country, you know, in which everybody could live sustainably with the planet, you know, that the natural resources that Honduras has wouldn't be just there to be exploited to enrich a few people in Honduras and international investors. She believed in a more just and a fairer Honduras. And she was involved with most of her active life with a particular organisation and that took her to being considered to run as vice president. Now, that's quite a journey. So would you mind telling us how that happened? Yeah, so Bertha co-founded the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organisations of Honduras, COPIN, in 93. And that was her grassroots, you know, it was a bona fide grassroots organisation directed by the base. She never became a leader who made decisions without the base. That's where the movement and decisions came from. Um, so in 2009... Um, she was elected to run as one of three vice president candidates, along with her presidential candidate, as independents. And this was very unusual in Honduras because it has been since the end of dictatorships, you know, in the 90s, a two-party system. And really, she was, you know, it wasn't something that she wanted to do, you know, but the people, communities across the country, indigenous, non-indigenous, rural, urban, saw her among the other, you know, this group of four as someone that could represent what they wanted, which was a rewriting of the constitution so that it was like a true social contract between the people, between this multi-ethnic, multicultural population and the state, rather than it being a constitution that represented and that was designed to benefit the interests of the elites. You know, they did this tour, you know, talking to communities all around the country and she was persuaded by that. It wasn't something that she was naturally drawn to. She was always, you know, much more an outsider, always. She was a, she was a member of the social movement. She was an activist, a defender. Being a politician wasn't something that she ever wanted to do, but she was chosen and she was elected and that's why she stood or she was going to stand. I love some of the descriptions in the book of her um, being invited to things and being offered to be put up at hotels, but choosing to take kind of busloads of other activists and stay with them. Also, she and her mate used to do sort of smoke ceremonies to bless what they were doing. Well, the smoke ceremony, I mean, you know, Copine, her organisation was 
it's a, it, you know, her struggle was as much about spiritual recognition as it was about political recognition, you know. The Lenka people, like all indigenous people in Honduras, were forgotten. The world and Hondurans themselves and the mestizos believed that there were no more indigenous people in Honduras. So a reawakening of that was, it was always a political and an indigenous spiritual struggle, always. And even today, all events, meetings, the court proceedings, everything, are started with smoke spiritual ceremonies. They're an integral part of who the Lenko people are. Her analysis of what was going on with the World Bank and the lending arm of the World Bank and neo-capitalism seems massively ahead of the times. I mean, massively ahead of our, you know, we're paying catch-up now, I think, over here as to what those situations are, I guess. And your book presents such a dismaying, aggressive, terrible kind of story of the effect of those institutions in that part of the world? I mean, and I think it's global. I think the fact is what's defined as development, you know, has been decided by financial institutions which do not serve the interests of communities. Communities have not been permitted, despite international treaties and agreements, to define what development means for them, you know? And so that goes way back, decades and decades. It's, it's an integral part of the neoliberal economic model. And the extractive industries are a key part of um, neoliberalism and a, and a key instrument of capitalism, right? It's about exploiting all natural resources for profit. That is the objective, you know? And so in countries like Honduras, but in across the world... How do local powerful business groups or businessmen elites access financial capital? They do that through international institutions, and that can be development banks, it can be private companies, you know, who have access, but you know, energy projects, mining projects, all of these environmentally destructive projects need massive capital, right? And so there are always international interests in these. The thing is that are globally financial institutions and these type of deals are designed to be not transparent. So if you're indigenous person in Guatemala or Honduras or wherever and you don't speak Spanish, never mind English, how do you navigate this system, you know, which is set up and designed not to be opaque? It's incredibly Mm. difficult, you know. But Bertha, I think, because of her experience during the 70s and 80s, she was always connecting the dots. She always understood local struggles in global terms, you know, because because you could see in El Salvador, in Honduras, the Cold War was being played out there that had nothing to do with ideology for the people. The people that were taking up arms were driven by hunger, by poverty, by inequalities, you know. And so she always understood local struggles in a much broader regional and global context. And that means political, economic, military, all of those elements. And at one point you say in the book that her daughter, I think her name is Bertita, uh, blames the World Bank in part for her mother's death. Yeah, I mean, I think that all the financial institutions that had directly or indirectly involved in the project. Her family, like Bartita says in the book, considered to be complicit. And that's the same, you know, when you look at when someone is killed, the easiest things to do is to look at who pulled the trigger, you know. But as I said before, that to understand why Bertha was killed and how she was killed, you have to understand this much broader context. 
And you, uh, Nina, you met many of those people. You met the people who could have pulled the trigger, but you also met uh, the guy running Dessa, who was uh, on top of the dam project. I mean, that must have been very compelling. I Would you tell us about your involvement in the trial and uh, reporting that? Sure, yeah. Um, So, I mean, over the period of investigating, you know, the story, I guess, for the book, I managed to interview eight of the nine men who have been accused up to now. and, And I was the only journalist covering the trial every day. I was the only foreign journalist that covered the trial. There were local journalists there, um... But a lot of the traditional and mainstream media in Honduras are ruled by the same elites that control everything else. The trial that took place at the end of 2019, seven of the eight men who faced trial were convicted. I interviewed seven of those, and they were who I would describe as the hitmen, the hired gunmen, and middlemen. You know, those are the people that have gone to jail. And the middlemen included... Military men, um, you know, military officers who had been trained over their careers by the US. They also included two people with links to the dam company. But as of yet, nobody who masterminded the murder, who ordered, who paid for, who benefited or enabled not just the murder, but all the crimes, all the crimes that happened in the lead up to the murder, you know, the harassment, the threats, the violence, the criminalisation... No one has faced justice. David Castillo, who is the president of the dam company, he's a um, US-trained former military intelligence officer as well. He has been charged. He's the only person that's been charged so far with uh, masterminding a crime. He's been in jail on remand for almost two and a half years and he's trying through the appeals process to have the charges dropped before the trial happens. But he remains, he's the only person that's been charged so far. What has the effects been of covering this story on your life? Uh, uh, has it just been completely absorbing work-wise or uh, has it affected you personally? Um, it, yeah, it's been a, a very, very intense time. You know, I mean, Honduras is not an easy place to be. It's not an easy place to... It's, you know, one of the most violent countries in the world outside a war zone. It's one of the most vi- dangerous countries in the world to be a woman, to be a journalist to be a lawyer, to be a defender. And you've been intimidated yourself. Uh, yeah, I have. I mean, in, in all sorts of different ways, you know. Um, um, often when I published a story in The Guardian, I that would be followed up by harassment, thinly veiled threats from members of the military, from the government. During the trial, or just when the trial was starting, press releases were circulated which the military, I believe the military intelligence were behind, that called me a violent insurgent, a link me to organised crime, called me a terrorist. Even since the book has been published, I've had, there's a bot campaign online trying to discredit me in the book. Um, an event that I recently did about the book was hacked half an hour before the event was cancelled. 300 participants were emailed to say that it was on. So it's been a sustained campaign, really, to stop me reporting on Honduras, and very few people do report in Honduras because it is so difficult. It's like the stress and the pressures every day. I'm very aware, as I say this, that I'm incredibly fortunate as a foreign reporter. You know, I had the ability to go in and go out and take security measures that a lot of my Honduran colleagues cannot take because of financial constraints, because, you know, they, you know, they live there. Um, I, for example, haven't 
for years haven't gone into Honduras on the plane. I've gone in overland in order to try and avoid sort of airport security, um, which in itself is, you know, involves, it used to involve for Mexico City an almost 24-hour journey to go to Guatemala, then get a bus. Yeah, it's, it's, it has a huge amount of pressure. Um, it's caused, it's not an easy thing to do. You spend a lot of time on your own, you know, it's, um, and reporting on someone's murder, you know, the targeted murder of somebody that was doing so much good. And she was targeted because of the impact those who ordered the killing and enabled it knew that it would have, you know, mm. this sort of this, this massive blow to the social movement in the region, you know, and really it was a message, you know, that we can kill anybody. Bertha Caceres was the most celebrated and well-known defender in the Americas at the time of her murder. She had just won the Goldman Prize and they killed her anyway. So, you know, it really was a show of force. It was a direct message to all of those trying to speak truth to power in that country. Um, and do you feel that your book and the trial, in a way, answers some of that? I mean, who killed Bertha Caceres? I think it, my book helps explain who she was and why she was killed. It explains why there hasn't been full justice for Bertha, you know, that all these layers of interests that are active and are in play and which show that why that it's going to be a very long struggle for her family, for her people to get to the whole truth and maybe they never will. You know, there's been a clear attempt to protect the political elite, the economic powers behind the dam and the armed forces themselves as an institution. All those lines of investigation have just been closed. They've not been investigated at all, you know. So I think my book is by no means... I mean, it raises a lot of questions, but I think what it does do in, you know, when Honduras is a country that is so hard to report from, and all, certainly in the US where I'm based, hundreds of thousands of Hondurans have been forced to flee towards the US, which is a hostile country, you know, to escape this violence and corruption and an extreme poverty. I hope the book explains why they leave. Mm-hmm. That, that, that they're the same reasons and the same conditions that enable Bertha to be killed, you know? And so these are the mm-hmm. same conditions which cause and force people to flee. And it's a very small tribute uh, compared with what she did with her life. But uh, were you aware that the Extinction Rebellion boat in the Oxford Circus was called after Berta? Um, I was. Uh, were you in town? <laughs> I wasn't in town. So John Watt, Jonathan Watts, uh, the Guardian's global editor, um, he did do a story about it. I wasn't, yeah, I'm so rarely in the UK um, these days, but I was aware of it. And, you know, it put a big smile on my face. I think it was a really nice tribute. I know that her family and her colleagues were really touched by it. I think it's, you know, what my book also does and what things like that do is keep Bertha's name in the international consciousness. She cannot be forgotten. We, we cannot um, submit and com- do what the state is trying to make us do is now just wash our hands and say, oh, well, we had a trial, it's done. You know, mm. absolutely not. And I think just, it's like when I see murals for Bertha in the most random places, there's a, a, in Camden, there's one in Dublin, you know, is these things are really important to keep her and also the whole movement, you know, the movement of environmental defenders, um, the people who are trying to safeguard our planet in the international consciousness. So yeah, I think it was a really nice gesture and people really appreciated it.
Wow, that is such an amazing story. And it seems like Nina herself had to be really brave in pursuing that story as a freelancer in looking into so many dangerous connections. Yeah, it was uh, amazing to talk to someone who not only had met Berta, but she covered the trial and she still knows Berta's children. Um, and you can, you know, you can tell that level of involvement from the book. There is so much detail in it. Yeah, I did see Berta's daughter in a webinar as well, talking about just what a devastating setback it was to lose Berta, not only personally, but also organizationally for Copen. Yes, and although Nina is a bit ambivalent about the result of the trial, I do think the fact that they seem to catch so many of the people who were actually involved involved with the murder is important, uh, but also the fact that DESA, which was the organisation behind the dam, the head of that organisation is still being held now. So that's two and a half years later. And I think that shows both to the people in Honduras and, you know, on a world stage that you can't behave like that with total impunity. Yeah, especially because, as Nina said, uh, Berta Cáceres was one of the most high-profile environmental defenders on the whole planet. As you mentioned, she had just won a globally recognized prize the year before. And to finish this section and remember Berta's contribution, let's hear her on a night that justly celebrated her when she won the prize. In nuestras cosmovisiones, somos seres surgidos de la tierra in our worldview, we are beings who come from the earth, from the water and from the corn. The Lenka people are ancestral guardians of the rivers, in turn protected by the spirit of the young girls, who teach us that giving our lives in various ways for the protection of the river is giving our lives for the well-being of humanity and of this planet. Despertemos humanidad. Ya no hay tiempo. Nuestras conciencias. Let us wake up, humankind. We're out of time. Nuestras conciencias serán sacudidas por el hecho de estar solo contemplando la autodestrucción basada en la depredación capitalista, racista y patriarcal. We must shake our conscience free from the rapacious capitalism racism and patriarchy that will only assure our own self-destruction. El río Hualcarque nos ha llamado, así como los demás que están seriamente amenazados en todo el mundo. The River has called upon us, as have other gravely threatened rivers. We must answer their call. La madre tierra militarizada, Our mother cercada, earth, militarized, fenced in, poisoned, a place where basic rights are systematically violated, demands that we take action. Berta Cáceres acceptance speech at the 2015 Goldman Environmental Prize Ceremony in San Francisco. This also links to an epidemic of violence and threat in Latin America in particular, which I think a lot of journalists like Nina are looking into and trying to figure out what is driving it. In 2018, the Guardian newspaper put it as the short answer is industry. And this is what indigenous leaders and communities are 
subjected to. It's violence by agribusiness, mining, there's poaching, there are constant pushes to build hydroelectric dams, and there's a lot of logging that they have to contend with as well. So the next interview we have on this week's podcast is from James from XR Bogota. Hello, my name is James Arango. I'm from Bogota, Colombia. I've been in Extinction Rebellion since October last year. And um, we started the movement here in Bogota by September, maybe. So I was like one of the first ones here. But um, the movement has had a lot of transformations. And now we have lots of new people. And Bogota is like present with Extinction Rebellion. Rebelde por la vida. Rebelde por la vida. Rebelate por la vida. In April this year, members of XR Bogota and XR Brighton, two meditators groups, joined together in an online act of solidarity, marking the fact that environmental defenders had been killed. Unable to take our vigil to the streets, we will meet using the online Zoom platform. Dada la imposibilidad de llevar nuestra vigilia a las calles, usaremos la plataforma virtual Zoom. En este momento de emergencia ecológica y climática nos reuniremos para honrar a los activistas en Colombia que han sido asesinados por proteger las personas, las plantas, animales, ríos y el medio ambiente en general. At our moment of ecological and climate emergency, we will gather to honor activists in Colombia who have been killed for protecting people, plants, animals, rivers and the environment. In Colombia, we in the main cities, we live in peace, but outside the cities, in the rural areas or in the places where there's not enough presence from the government, there is more violence. That's where the social and environmental activists have been killed. Also because these illegal entities for their finances, they use uh, drugs as the main source of finance, but also illegal mining, and the natural resources such as wood from the forests, and they tend to do stuff without any regulation, and, and that's causing a major problem. So people who stand up against those problems are being killed. People that oppose to huge infrastructure projects, people who defend certain areas because of water or because of their importance regarding the environment, have been killed, people who defend their customs and their way of life, the indigenous people, they've been killed. This also happens because the routes that they use to smuggle drugs to Europe and the United States pass through some of the lands of the indigenous people. So in some places, the killings may happen due to drugs. In other cases, these killings might be because they are interfering with some huge mega project of the state. I mean, uh, we had a case of an hydroelectric power dam. It's called Inhidroituango. Uh, during the construction in the last 10 years, leaders have been killed there. And, uh, and there's not a, an enough uh, investigation about it made from the government. We cannot point out who really did it. It's like a complicity between the illegal entities and the local ones also. Omar Wisurama. There were 63 of us here now. Plinio Pulgarin. James says that it's really nice to see us all here together. Nixon Mutis. The names of some of the activists Jesus Orlando Grueso. that have lost their lives that we are honouring today. Alejandro Ginas. 
they lost their lives defending our shared earth. Jonathan Kundumi. Standing up against corporate greed. Flower Sapujas Gaviria. We can hold each of them in our hearts. Hector Janer Latin. Maria del Carmen Moreno. Pilar Hurtado. Carlos Oliver Jim Herrera Camacho. Lucy Villarreal. I'm looking at a, an article and it says that between January and March, it, 47 social leaders were assassinated in Colombia. You might want to continue with this feeling of your hand on your heart. This uh, thing that we did between uh, Brighton and, and Bogota was beautiful because it gave us also like a sense of remembering that killing is bad because sometimes we are so used to it that it happens and we really don't understand how bad it is because in some other countries in the world where this doesn't happen, like for example the UK, People are very sensitive to what's happening, whereas here in Colombia we are very, we're like immune to it, right? So this activity that we did gave us like a new sense of remembering, of realizing again how bad this is in our country, even if it happens every day, even if it's continuing to happen, and even if we don't have any support by the government regarding capturing the, the people who, who, who do this stuff. So. It's like it was like a breath of hope again. Yeah, if you want to say goodbye, you can unmute yourself and say goodbye in English or Spanish. That's very nice. Gracias. Gracias. Thank you so much. Gracias. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Gracias. It's really cool to hear that XR is so active in Colombia as well. I know a lot of rebels here are getting really interested in indigenous rights all over the world. Yeah, and in fact, Iggy Fox, who I sometimes refer to, the activist uh, who died earlier this year, he was really keen uh, on focusing on what's going on in Central and South America. And he was part of the action teams that organized protests outside the Brazilian embassy. It's such important work to engage in, I think, especially being based in the UK. That stuff is really essential if we're going to have solutions to the climate and ecological crises that are fair and just, and they don't just reorganize the status quo that we have right now. So, Michaela, how are you after presenting your first podcast episode? Pretty good. I learned so much being a part of this, so I'm looking forward to doing more. Um, we've actually got a couple more episodes coming up that I'm really excited for, including a series we're creating with XR Youth US and another fantastic episode about citizens' assemblies. Yeah, and I'm going to be working on an episode uh, for the launch of Money Rebellion uh, that would play a part in either the September Rebellion or the official launch which will be of Money Rebellion, which will be just after. So, on that point... 
please, listeners, book off your first week in September because there's a rebellion coming up and uh, we need to get on the streets. There's so much to do. Please, we've got a campaign right now to email and phone friends and family to try and get as many people to that rebellion as possible. Also, those who are interested, please check out the Writers Rebel website at www.writersrebel.com. We'll be doing some things during the rebellion as well. And if anyone listening is a social media whiz and you want to join the XR podcast team, we would absolutely love to have you. You can reach out to us at xr-podcast at protonmail.com. That's xr-podcast at protonmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Jessica Townsend. And I've been Michaela Herman. <laughs>